Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is an episode about a case, a couple of cases, that no longer carry the force of constitutional law. This episode was made when the essential holding of Roe v. Wade still stood. This is no longer the case. It's a rare occurrence for the Supreme Court to overturn a decision outright, especially a landmark decision. But that is indeed what happened on Friday, June 24th, shortly after 10 a.m. In a 6-3 vote to uphold a Mississippi abortion ban in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization and a 5-4 vote to overrule Roe v. Wade in its entirety, the Supreme Court has eliminated a federal right to abortion. In the majority opinion, Justice Samuel Alito calls Roe egregiously wrong from the start. The opinion holds that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Casey, by the way, refers to Planned Parenthood v. Casey, a case determined in 1992 which could have overruled Roe v. Wade but did not. The reasoning at the time being that Roe was practicable, the provisions of Roe depended upon by people in the United States, and that landmark precedent was important to preserve. Thirty years later, a majority of the court determined that Roe and Casey must go. Period. When we first released this episode in 2021, one of our guests, Renee Kramer, said something that I didn't include in the episode because it was a prediction, not yet a fact. Hey, Renee, you were right. And I've been predicting that Roe will fall for the last three years. I mean, on live television, I have said Roe will fall. The fact that it didn't astounds me. When Roe falls, access to reproductive health care of almost all kinds will depend on where you live. Listen to this episode to get an understanding of what Roe v. Wade was, what Casey was, and why they happened in the first place. But know that decisions about abortion access are now the providence of your state. Here we go. Every year, around 7,000 cases try to beg their way onto the Supreme Court's docket. And only about 100, you know, maybe 150 of them make it. And while all of them are significant, the majority pass by without a ton of scrutiny. There is one case in particular, though, that for some was pure scandal. A ruling so controversial that to this day, advocates work tirelessly to preserve or overturn it. To uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. And I think that January 22nd, 1973 would be an historic day. In this instance, the Supreme Court has withdrawn protection for the human rights of unborn children. 
and it is teaching... What is the most important human right? The right to life. The right to life? The right to life. Okay. That a fetus is not a person. Yes, it is. As, okay, that's where the okay, disagreement so look, is. The fetus. If women what? could keep themselves from getting pregnant when they didn't want to. I'll tell you what it is. It's chastity. Yo, bagpipes! Chastity. Shut up! Purity. When does it become a child? It's my body. I would have to carry the child. Civics 101, I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And today we're taking on a case that these days shows up in every Senate hearing for a new nominee to the Supreme Court. The case that every nominee gets asked about, Roe v. Wade, can you tell me whether Roe was decided correctly? At protests and during elections. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, what would you want Indiana to do? Would you want your home state to ban all abortions? You have two minutes. A case that fueled the fire of two movements that draw a line in the reproductive sand. Roe versus Wade. I will start by saying that probably anything you think you know about Roe is wrong. This is Renee Kramer, law professor at Drake University. Wait, hang on, hang on. This has got to be one of the most famous cases the Supreme Court ever ruled on. And Renee's saying we don't actually know it? I mean, Roe v. Wade is the case that legalized abortion, right? No, actually. It simply said that Texas couldn't criminalize abortion in the first trimester. As it turns out, before you can start learning Roe v. Wade, you first have to unlearn Roe v. Wade. And one of the first things that we have to unlearn about Roe is that states weren't outlawing abortion because of religious or moral views. The church was actually not a big player. The Roman Catholic Church or the Evangelical Church was not a big player in abortion politics until after Roe. State laws limiting access to abortion were passed because doctors wanted to decide which women could access them. So most states began with laws like if your health is in peril, your doctor can facilitate an abortion. And doctors had a really liberal view of what that meant. The main factor in providing an abortion was the health of the mother. So if a woman was going to die, if she carried to term, she could of course abort. But the same went for mental health risk, like postpartum depression, or not having enough money to support a family, or being at risk of losing your job if you were pregnant. Okay, so Roe v. Wade is not about legalizing unrestricted abortion. And anti-abortion laws were not necessarily based on pro-life ideas. Pro-life being the term anti-abortion activists use for their movement. Yeah. And one more thing. Roe v. Wade did not result in the plaintiff, Jane Roe, real name Norma Jean McCorvey, getting an abortion. She ended up carrying the child to term and giving the child up for adoption. While we're on the subject of Norma Jean McCorvey, McCorvey later went on to speak out against abortion and call her involvement in Roe v. Wade the biggest mistake of her life. I've done a lot against his teachings, but I I think the far greater sin that I did was to be the plaintiff in Roe v. Wade. Okay, that I have heard. Norma McCorvey became a major anti-abortion activist. She did indeed, which makes this interview clip all the more complicated. Do you think they would say that you used them? Well, I think it was a mutual thing. You know, I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say, and that's what I'd say. 
That is Norma McCorvey telling director Nick Sweeney that, essentially, she was putting on an act in exchange for money from pro-life groups. She also says in this interview that if a young woman wants to have an abortion, that is her choice. McCorvey passed away in 2017, so unfortunately we cannot ask her about any of that. But there you go. This documentary, by the way, came out in 2020. It's called AKA Jane Roe. And the one last thing I will say about unlearning Roe v. Wade, when we talk about Roe, we're actually talking about Roe and a case called Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Another case. Yep. In 1992, Planned Parenthood v. Casey nearly resulted in Roe being overturned. It was not overturned, but it was changed drastically enough for Chief Justice William Rehnquist to write the following. Quote, Roe continues to exist, but only in the way a storefront on a Western movie set exists. A mere facade to give the illusion of reality. And we will come back to that later. Wow. Hannah, now you've told me what this case is not. Can we talk about what it is? Yes. Back to Jane Roe. So um, this was a, a very troubled woman for most of her life, both before and after the case. What brought the case to be was that she was an unmarried woman who, this was her third pregnancy, and she did not want to remain pregnant. She wanted to have an abortion. In the state of Texas, abortion was outlawed unless to save the life of the mother or the mother was raped or a victim of incest. So at no time could a woman simply access abortion. She had to be have her life at risk or have um, the pregnancy be the result of a crime. So she lied and said that she had been raped. And that makes this problematic for a whole host of reasons, but not problematic legally. So she eventually, after trying to get an abortion illegally, found her way to two attorneys, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington. This is Mary Ziegler, law professor at Florida State University College of Law and author of a number of books about abortion law and Roe v. Wade. Um, She eventually gave birth anyway before the case was decided um, and the child uh, went up for adoption, but the case continued. So Coffey and Weddington uh, filed suit in a district court in Texas on McCorvey's behalf, and they used an alias, Jane Roe. The purpose of an alias, by the way, is to protect the identity of the plaintiff. Sort of similar to using TLO's initials in New Jersey VTLO because she was a minor at the time. Even though we later found out Rose's identity, you can imagine why Coffey and Weddington might have initially wanted to protect their client's privacy. But when she came forward, Norma McCorvey became the emblem of the movement. So she's here today coming out of hiding for this, and we appreciate yeah. her courage. Don't we? Anyway, the case goes to a Texas district court, and here is the kicker. In that district court, a three-judge panel found the law that prevented Norma McCorvey from pursuing an abortion to be invalid. But District Attorney Henry Wade was not so happy about that. He appealed the case to the Supreme Court. And by the way, the court almost did not take it. Here's Renee again. Some of the the people on the court said, well, we shouldn't hear this case. There's a rule that the court cannot hear moot cases. A moot case is one that doesn't matter anymore. And you could look at Norma McCorvey or Jane Roe and say, well, she's not pregnant anymore. She doesn't need access to an abortion. 
And the court does that sometimes when it wants to avoid an issue like affirmative action. Some of the first affirmative action cases, they'd say, well, he already got his degree. We don't need to, we don't need to trouble with this. But they looked at Jane Roe and the state of Texas and they said, you know, any woman in Texas who's pregnant and doesn't want to be is gonna have this problem. They defined her as part of a class. A class of people, meaning any woman who could become pregnant who didn't want to be pregnant. And they said, we have to decide this on their behalf, using the facts of her case as the starting point. So the court takes the case. We'll hear arguments in number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade. You've got attorney Jay Floyd arguing in defense of the Texas abortion restrictions, and attorneys Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington representing Roe. And Floyd, Nick, oh boy, Floyd, arguing a case that will ultimately decide whether a woman has a right to choose to have an abortion, arguing opposite two accomplished female lawyers, starts his argument like so. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. Oh, that's just... (laughs) That really happened? Yeah, that really happened. It's been called the worst joke ever made in um, legal history. That's ridiculous, and I'm not really hearing a chuckle from the bench. No, apparently Chief Justice Warren Burger looked like he was going to come at Floyd for that one. So Weddington and Coffey argue along Ninth Amendment unenumerated rights. That's the amendment that says that just because a right isn't listed in the Bill of Rights doesn't mean that you don't have it. They also went for 14th Amendment rights to liberty and cite the due process and equal protections clauses of the Constitution. What's the argument of Mr. Live at the Improv, J. Floyd? The state of Texas had two arguments essentially saying even if there is an abortion right, these laws should still be unconstitutional. The first was that a fetus or unborn child was a person. So if uh, a fetus or unborn child is a person within the meaning of the constitution, that person would have, for example, a right to due process of law and to equal protection of the law, which would make abortion rights kind of a legal impossibility. Texas's second argument was that the government had a compelling interest in protecting life from the moment of conception. Thank you, Mrs. Weddington. Thank you, uh, Mr. Floyd. The case is submitted. So that is the first time this case is argued before the court. First time? The court heard Roe v. Wade more than once? It did indeed. We'll have that story after the break. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. You're listening to Civics 101, and we are talking about the 1973 Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade. So, I mean, one of the things that's worth noting, right, is that the court gets Roe in 1970, and there is no decision in Roe until 1973, which is really unusual, right? I mean, the Supreme Court is slow, but not three years kind of slow. Three years? What happened? Well, it's 1970, and the court says, okay, we will hear Roe. And oral arguments happen, and the justices are discussing, getting ready to make a ruling. Justice Harry Blackman proposes an opinion that will say Texas law is unconstitutionally vague because it's unclear when an abortion would be necessary to protect a woman's life, and you shouldn't be able to punish doctors. And his liberal colleagues are like, you know what, Harry, that really doesn't go far enough. So they reschedule the case for re-argument. And by the way, Texas Assistant Attorney General Robert Flowers replaces Floyd in that second round. And then uh, Blackman famously um, spent some time over that summer uh, researching the history of the abortion at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, where he was from. And so Roe very much is kind of steeped in Blackman's sense of the medical history of abortion and what the medical profession thought about abortion. Was Harry Blackman a doctor in a former life or something? Not even a little bit. The Mayo Clinic was a former client of his. But Blackman's research, and eventually his opinion, did focus on something that we still talk about today when it comes to the length of a pregnancy. Trimesters. Uh, How did this line of discussion start to evolve in your mind? Well, by reading, doing a lot of reading that summer and... uh, literally getting into the uh, the history of abortion and the the attitude of organizations to it and uh, again all that set forth in the opinion is i found it fascinating and he's very interested in educating the public about the different stages of pregnancy and our understanding of pregnancy has changed somewhat since 1973 but for the most part we still think of pregnancy in this way we have trimesters So the court is saying, well, what we understand is women are pregnant for three trimesters for nine months, which is really 40 weeks, which is really 10 months. Um, And we know that the fetus is viable 
after a certain point in its development. And by viable, they mean could live unassisted outside of the mother, could be born prematurely and survive. At the time, they put fetal viability at the third trimester mark, so those last three months of pregnancy. We came up with what it was ending with the trimester system, and it seemed to have an appeal, and uh, that was it. And what the court said was, gosh, in those last three months, the state might well have a compelling interest in regulating and limiting women's access to abortion. We have the sense that the fetus has developed almost to the point of autonomy. So Justice Blackman is the first one who introduces us to this notion of a trimester question when it comes to abortion and Roe v. Wade. And that is a huge element to the decision in this case which, in case we've forgotten, hinges on this Texas state law that prohibits abortion. And the court ultimately has to decide whether that law is constitutional. Remember, Texas is arguing in part that the fetus is a person. So they have to address that. So uh, the court in Roe said, no, there, there is no fetal personhood because when the Constitution uses the word person, it applies pretty much only postnatally. There, the Roe court sort of canvassed what it saw as leading uh, religious and medical authorities and essentially said there's no agreement on when life begins. And so if there is no agreement, neither the Supreme Court nor the state of Texas can impose one view on everybody else. The court says, yes, agreeing with Weddington and Coffey, the due process clause argument applies here. A woman has a right to privacy and choosing an abortion falls within that right. And also, yes, the state does have interest in protecting both a mother and the potentiality of life. But that varies from trimester to trimester. You cannot criminalize abortion during the first trimester. But things get more complicated during the second and third. Essentially, Blackman sets out what is his ambition for the case, which is to try to sort of stay above the political fray and to resolve the questions in a way that feels less, sort of more dispassionate, right? I think that was his ambition. Um, And of course that reads kind of tragically, I think, to people who've been following it since then, because of course Roe became kind of the central point of, of contestation. It hardly diffused the debate, it probably escalated it. Today, we think about the abortion debate as pro-life versus pro-choice, Republican versus Democrat, conservative versus liberal, Christian versus non-Christian. And the debate certainly existed prior to Roe v. Wade, but this political divide? Prior to the 1970s, Democrats voted against abortion about as often as Republicans. After Roe v. Wade, the Catholic Church, for example, got louder about abortion. So the people who wanted access to abortion also had to get louder. Republican Richard Nixon looks at all of these loud anti-abortion Catholics and social conservatives and thinks, I should appeal to them. We should be the pro-family party. But even then, the Supreme Court was not at top of mind. Anti-abortion advocates wanted a constitutional amendment. It's, it's really hard to amend the Constitution. So eventually that strategy becomes off limits and the anti-abortion movement is sort of looking at, into how they can kind of justify their movement going forward. 
And the answer that the anti-abortion movement came up with was that the point was to change the Supreme Court and see to it that Roe was overturned. In 1980, Ronald Reagan actually campaigned on appointing anti-abortion justices. Meanwhile, Blackman's trimester fetal viability principle, the thing that he thought would put a pin in the abortion question, becomes essential to the post-Roe v. Wade legal battles. This part of Roe is where we've had the last 40 years of litigation. Does the state have a legitimate interest in the life of the fetus in those middle months, in the time that it is developing towards viability? Or does it have a legitimate interest, a less legitimate interest in the fetus and a greater interest in the health and welfare of the mother? You will notice all of these constructions pit the woman against the fetus as though they are rivals. This is not how, this is not how it had to be. This is a story law has told about women's bodies and reproduction, that when a woman is pregnant and wants an abortion, it's pitting a fetus against a woman. And when the fetus is really small, the woman wins. And when the fetus is really big, the fetus wins or the state. Um, that, that's a completely constructed way of understanding abortion, healthcare, pregnancy, and it's outdated. So the question becomes, as we get better technology and the fetus is viable earlier, does that increase the state's interest? Speaking of fetal viability, I told you at the beginning of this episode that when we talk about Roe v. Wade, we're talking about Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Because Planned Parenthood v. Casey, it got rid of Blackman's trimester rule. What are the facts of this case and how does it relate to Roe v. Wade? Well, the case is a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. The law at issue is a Pennsylvania law that was passed in both 1988 and again amended in 1989, which enact a series of roadblocks in the path of women obtaining abortions. The reason that it uh, presents a direct challenge to Roe is these same restrictions were a uh, struck down as unconstitutional back in 1986 by the Supreme Court under Roe versus Wade. And so for the court to address whether or not they are now uh, constitutional, that court must revisit the question uh, and determine what are the appropriate standards to judge abortion laws. How did the case even get into the, the court declined to overturn Roe but got rid of the trimester framework? and instead adopted what it called the undue burden test. So now, if you want to know if an abortion regulation is constitutional, the question is whether it is the purpose or effect of creating a substantial obstacle for someone seeking abortion. And that, of course, is notoriously vague. And within the court and outside of the court, people have been fighting about exactly what it means ever since. But when you're really thinking about the fate of Roe going forward with this um, six current conservative six justice majority, what you're really talking about is the fate of, of Roe and Casey, because Roe in the law has already been changed in pretty fundamental ways. What this means practically is that a state now can limit access to abortion in the first trimester. Justice Harry Blackman was still on the court at this time, and this is what he said in his dissent, that, quote, the Roe framework is far more administrable and far less manipulable than the undue burden standard adopted by the joint opinion.
You know, Hannah, you told us that in order to learn Roe v. Wade, you have to unlearn Roe v. Wade, and boy, have I done just that. But at the same time, the things we associate with Roe v. Wade, all of the debate and legislation and court cases that followed, this is what we did with Roe v. Wade. That represents what we still think of Roe. There's the court case, Roe v. Wade. Jane Roe, an unmarried pregnant girl. There's Harry Blackman and his research. I put a lot of myself into that opinion. There's Norma McCorvey and her contradictions. It was all an act. Yeah. There's Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It was initiated by That's right. Planned Parenthood. Whenever. Uh, and then there is the political and social division that Roe is synonymous with, even today. Roe has become this incredibly powerful cultural symbol, much bigger than what the Supreme Court itself ever said, a kind of window into how we see lots of things, everything from gender to the role of the courts in our democracy. And it's changed lots of things about our politics, right? The kind of the role of the Supreme Court, the view that this, uh, the Supreme Court is probably the major election issue, how social movements proceed when using tactics. And so I think if you're studying Roe, you're not just studying Roe, you're studying lots of other things about the functioning of American democracy and kind of the nature of social change. I've got one last question, and I think it will help me understand what Roe actually did, how it impacts life today. Because there is an enormous push to overturn it. And anti-abortion activists are optimistic that the current makeup of the Supreme Court, which is majority conservative could mean that the decision is overturned at some point. So what would that actually do? All right, this is a two-parter because Roe does maintain, despite Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that a woman has a right to choose an abortion in certain cases. So what would an overturn mean in terms of health care? Here's Renee again. Access to reproductive health care of almost all kinds will depend on where you live. So it will be state by state. Women who live in California, who live in New York, they will have great access to abortion if they want it. They will have great access to prenatal care. Women who live in impoverished areas, rural areas, more conservative areas, not only will they not have access to abortion, they also, and this is documented, really well documented, that in jurisdictions with limited access to birth control, we actually see worse maternal health outcomes and that those maternal health outcomes are desperately bad for women of color. So when a state legislates against abortion, it's not as though it legislates in favor of babies and maternal health. It just gets rid of access to Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood is where women get their birth control, their prenatal care, their postnatal care, their STD testing, their mammograms. So in states where Planned Parenthood is forced out, we actually have worse rates of women's health in general. And no fewer abortions, just fewer safe abortions. So if Roe goes away, the decision about whether a woman can get an abortion in any circumstance goes to the states. Which is actually an important point because of what it means for people who wish to see Roe overturned. Here's Mary with the second part of the answer to your question. Even though I think Roe is an object lesson in the limits of the power of the Supreme Court, right? Harry Blackman had planned and expected to settle the abortion conflict with this opinion, which of course looks laughable almost 50 years later. The the irony is that abortion opponents seem to believe the same thing Harry Blackman did almost 50 years ago, right? That if they have 
the perfect Supreme Court decision going the other way, that that will settle the abortion debate only in their favor. And they're you know, just as likely to be wrong as Blackman was. Roe v. Wade is remembered as this sweeping, landmark decision that gave a woman the green light to have an abortion if she so chooses. But when you look right at it, it's actually a case about privacy, fetal viability, and state interests. It's a case with limitations. A case that some would say has lost its teeth already. Still, what we believe about Roe v. Wade is just as important as what it actually says. The mythos and misperception of the case is in large part the reason it stands as one of the most controversial rulings in history. This episode was written and produced by Hannah McCarthy with me, Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer, Rebecca Lavoie our executive producer, and our staff includes Jackie Fulton. If you like this episode and you learned something and you want more, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Civics101Pod and wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Music in this episode by BioUnit, Ketza, Meter, The Young Philosophers Club, and Xylozyco. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.